Richard. Why did I know he was going to be like this? <laughs> From our Twitter conversations and our texts, I had the impression that here was a man who must have some Scots in him, <laughs> along with the Portuguese, the Italian, and all the other bits and pieces. Because the kind of humor that these, I really like this humor. But people in the Northeast don't get <laughs> humor. Like, they take me seriously. It's got me into a lot of trouble. They have no imagination whatsoever. <laughs> and, and if it's bad in the Northeast, it was even worse in London. I mean, it was really bad. The Southeast, they are so uptight in the Southeast of England, aren't they? I mean, you're from further north. So, I mean, that's saner outside of London but they really just have no sense of humor whatsoever. Anyway uh, all that to say you guys and girls have done me so much good this week. You have no idea how much you have ministered to me as a, an individual. There are things going on in my life, in my ministry that you don't know about um, and uh, God in his providence arranged for me to be here this week in your company, to be refreshed, actually just to be brought back to sanity again, to be with some sane people for a while. Um, and, and I'm so grateful to God for you and for all the work that you, that you have done and for what you stand for, just delightful what you stand for, your confessionalism and your faithfulness to, to God and his word. So I thank God for every one of you and for every remembrance I'm going to have of you. Well, tonight, um, tonight I'm going to begin in chapter 10 of Hebrews, but I'm not going to end there. Uh, but I think I need to pick up where we left on off last night in order to make a couple of connections through to what I hope will be the climax of our, of our meditation uh, and having, having, as we did last night, read from Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In verse 11, we, we read these words, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their, mind, their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
And then if you'll turn over to chapter 12 and verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word, the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our Father, Father of our Lord Jesus, and our Father by gracious adoption, would you grant to us your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to sanctify our thoughts, enable us to receive his holy word, and then do with that word in us that which is your will. In Christ our Savior's name, amen. Well, the center and purpose and goal and history, as the writer to the Hebrews describes it, is the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that description, that description that, that I've just used, in many ways mirrors the priorities in the mind of the author. Because he's talking about the Lord, the one who from eternity is God, the Son. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus, that human name, and he's very careful when he uses the name Jesus to attach his humanity and his human actions and his prayers and his cries and his tears to that name. He talks about Christ, the mediator, the one who touches both sides, God and man, and who as the Messiah, as the mediator, has come to act on our behalf between God and in the things of God. 
And this name, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the driver of the story, the driver of the purposes of God. The purposes of God that are formed by the Holy Trinity in the decree of the divine will. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conspire together for us and our salvation. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in the coming of the Savior. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in the word that we have before us, this word of God. We, we come to have this communion that is the purpose of all that God has done. This communion as human being, as beings, as creatures, to have both union and communion with himself in Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is the purpose of God in the coming of Jesus into the world. And at the, at the heart of the incarnation, which the, the author has unpacked early in the book, and we kind of skipped that, and we went straight to his death on the cross, but he deals with the incarnation first, and that for, for this reason, having described his nature as God, he then goes on to show how this person, that is the person of the Son, assumes our nature. Now that is not to say that the divine nature assumes human nature because that would bring change into the being of God and would bring change into the human nature. It is the person of the Son who assumes human nature. That's a very uh, fundamental distinction that we need to make. Because as we think of Christ, we're thinking of one who has two natures and that each nature remains intact, unchanged, and unchangeable. So that in Christ, there are two natures, two wills. That in Christ, there are two faculties, two wisdoms, two knowledges, two powers, two actions, two activities, the divine and the human in one person. For there is but one person, one God with us, one God manifest in the flesh, one word made flesh, but one word, one person with two wills, two operations. And the work that he accomplished on our behalf, he accomplished in his person as the mediator, as the God-man. And it, as it is in his two natures, in one person, that he is the savior and the mediator and the head of the church, the divine taking the lead, the human nature as the instrument in which he achieves our salvation. So when he says, back in verse 9, I come to do your will, he is committing himself to do the divine will as a creature. He is committing himself to obey on our behalf, and he does so with great joy. It's as if he's saying to the angelic host, and anyone who can listen, here I come, here I am, I've come to do your will, oh my God, in the words of that psalm. The angels sing about it. The angels rec recognize the contagious joy of the Son in taking on and assuming our humanity when they burst heaven's borders to appear to those shepherds on the field singing glory to God in the highest. 
because they are gripped by, gripped by the joy of the Son in assuming our humanity. And he took our humanity because he came to be our sponsor. That's an old word, very popular in the Reformed Orthodox. He's our sponsor because he came to assume our debt and our indebtedness. He came to act as us and for us. He came to be our sacrifice. Verse 10 says we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He achieved this work on our behalf by offering himself in total obedience on the altar of the cross in order that he might bestow eternal righteousness on us who believe. And the author, as he's unpacked this earlier in the book, Wright underscores that his sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice. He took this body that was prepared by the Father, wrought by the Holy Spirit, that in that body he might offer a sacrifice in order to sanctify his church. All his believing people were going to be with him, in him, at his death, and in his rising, share the value and the effects of his finished work. The whole church of God, the whole church of God's elect, were thereby set apart, dedicated to God, to be his very own people. He was the perfect sacrifice, and his was the final sacrifice. It was once for all, verse 11 as we've just read, reminds us once for all a single offering when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. And you see the great contrast between the sacrificial system of the old covenant, the repetitive nature of those sacrifices offered again and again and again daily as they went in those priests, they offered their sacrifices And they would stand all day as people brought their offerings to turtle doves, a pigeon here, a goat there, a lamb. They would bring these sacrifices and they would be offered, killed, slaughtered, put on the altar. Every day, all day, doing this repetitive work. I had an insight into what this repetitive work was like. One summer when I was a student, my summers as a student, I used to work in an orthopedic ward of a hospital. I had a job there and went to the same ward every summer. But there was one year I I didn't get in early enough and I had to take what I could get. And I got a job in a brickwork. That is in 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 a place that forms bricks. There was this massive machine There was somebody at the top who was shoveling all this goo into the top and then they can spout it forth in the form of these black uh, gooey messes in the shape of bricks. And as they came out, there was a flatbed beside me here. As they came out, I had to stack them roughly like this. A bit faster, actually, because they kept coming and get them. I could do this, by the way, for eight hours a day. And, and they kept on coming. And if you paused for a moment to scratch your nose, they, well, they just kept coming. <laughs> if somehow or other something, somebody got you, distracted your attention, they just kept coming. You could have a pile of these formed, gooey things round your feet, and they would just keep on 
falling, they keep on falling. They just kept coming all day long. It reminded me of the priests in the temple. That was their job, repetitive, over and over again. But by contrast, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. He did this once for all. Only by this single sacrifice, by him who knew no sin, could the work be accomplished so that it dealt with all sins. It was a single sacrifice for sins. Any and every sin, past, present, future sin, in this single, final, and complete sacrifice, all the Jewish ritual sacrifices that pointed towards this, foreshadowed it, drew their virtue from it, until that day when this great high priest offered himself in our room instead, in our place on the altar of the cross. And it was this sacrifice that was effective for us. Back in chapter 9, he says it was this sacrifice that obtained eternal redemption for us. Here in verse 14, it says that he perfected Forever, those who are sanctified. Those are the people around whom God has put a fence and said, of all the people in the world, these are mine. And these who are his are sanctified by virtue of the work of Christ on the cross. Perfection is the goal. It is the telos. It is the end game. The God who sets the goal has established that the goal should be perfect and complete restoration of the relationship between these fallen men and women and himself. And Christ, as God, brings us to that goal because as man, he was made complete by his sufferings and his sacrifice brings us to that place of Perfect standing with God. And so in a very dramatic way, the contrast is drawn between Christ and these Levitical priests. The priests who make their sacrifices standing, always standing, always on their feet, always busy at their task, never at rest, incessantly offering the victims again and again and again. Every day, it says, the priest stands ministering offerings The same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. The activity of the priest is a bit like the good works that we try to do if we believe that you can be saved by good works. You stand at that machine and it's spitting out these formed bricks and you stack your flatbed beside you. But as I said, if you pause, it keeps coming. If you take your eye off them for a moment, they keep coming. If you're not dealing with sin every second of the day, one will slip through. Good works never resolve the issue. Because like these priests who stood every day, they were offering sacrifices that could never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Because the work of salvation was over. Of course, he works as God incessantly. But he does not offer the sacrifice anymore. It was once and it was for all time, never 
to be repeated. That's not to say that our, that our Lord does nothing for us now. Of course, as the writer underscores, he ever lives to make intercession for us. But he sat down. And as uh, someone once said, a seated priest is the guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. So here we have the seated priest. Here we have the finished work. Here we have the accepted sacrifice. And now the hinge for this evening. Here we have the exalted Lord. He sat down at the right hand of God from henceforth expecting until his enemies be made his footstool. From all eternity, as God, he was with God and was God. When Isaiah went into the temple in Isaiah 6, do you remember what he saw? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And what were the seraphim singing? They were singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. Who did Isaiah see in the temple? Who did he see on the throne? Who was the majesty? Who was the sovereign on the throne that Isaiah saw when he said, sorry, there I was speaking English for a second there. I said Isaiah instead of Isaiah, but but you get the point. (laughs) Who was it that Isaiah saw on the throne in that place of all majesty? Well, he saw the Lord God of Israel. He saw the Lord of hosts. He saw the Holy, Holy, Holy One. But when you turn to John chapter 12, as it sets us up to understand what's going on in chapter 13 and that action of Jesus in which he leaves his place and returns to his place because he'd come from God and was going back to God, in the preface to that in chapter 12, what does John tell us that, the, that Isaiah saw? John tells us Isaiah saw Jesus, glory. Who is the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords from all eternity? It is Jesus. Well, it's the Trinity really, isn't it? But in Old Testament terms, describing God and describing the glory of God is to describe the glory of the one who shared the glory with him before the world was, before taking on the badge of a servant and pouring out his life to death that he might cleanse us and then returning to his place again. That is the great drama of redemption. He saw the Lord and Christ is Lord before all eternity. So what does it mean then that he sat down? Since the inseparable and indivisible triune God was in Christ in bodily form, Yes, the work of the triune God terminated in the Son in the person of Christ. But all of God was in Christ. We know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. We know that he could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're told that the fullness of the Godhead was in Christ in bodily form. We're told that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So it's the, it's the triune work 
of God, the inseparably, separable, indivisible work of God in Christ. That is the great business of what he is about. And so when it says he sat down, what we're being told is that as the mediator, that is as the God-man, as the Christ, as the one who now is two natures, the Son takes his human nature back to where he has, to the place where he as the Son has never left. He has been ruling all the time. He has been sustaining the universe all the time. He has been invisibly present everywhere all the time, even while located and identified in the man Christ Jesus. He takes his humanity and he brings his humanity, his raised and glorified humanity as mediator to the place of all power and authority in the universe. And as mediator, there he sits. As mediator, there he reigns over history and on the unfolding events of history as Revelation teaches us. Until all of his elect are with him in glory. And then as the mediator, he returns the authority to the Father. While in his divinity he remains unchanged in his exercise of sovereignty forever and ever. The exaltation and the session of Christ is the climax of his work of mediation on behalf of his people. He sits as Christ. And once he has delivered the kingdom to God, once he's brought all of his elect into that everlasting kingdom, then he gives up that role. He no longer is mediator. He no longer needs to be the mediator. All the work of the mediator is over once all of us are there. And at that point, God, that is the triune God, God is all in all. And when he had made purification for sin, it says back in chapter 1, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And now it says he is waiting. He's waiting, waiting for the complete overthrow of all of his enemies. The language of Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. He sits at the right hand of God. He sits at the right hand of God the Father with equal power in the divine nature, but with the more important goods in the human nature. That's Thomas Aquinas, good old Tommy the Baptist. He sits on the right hand of the majesty of God and this forever, for he will not die again because Christ rising from the dead dies now no more. His power is an everlasting power. And from there he waits expecting until his enemies are a footstool for his feet. Tommy again. This expecting does not imply any anxiety in Christ as it does in us but it designates his will to have mercy. Quoting Isaiah 30, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore exalts himself to show mercy to you. Therefore those who are willing to be subjected under his feet uh, uh, share in his salvation and in that perfection for all time. He is waiting 
Why is he waiting? Well, says Thomas Aquinas, he's waiting to be gracious. He's waiting to be merciful, as Isaiah says. The, 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 end, the end time is in, prolonged in order that he might gather in his elect, in order that the gospel of the kingdom should be preached into all the earth until the harvest of God's elect is complete. He is waiting. And he is waiting for that moment when he shall finally overthrow all his enemies. His enemies are the devil. His enemies are the organized kingdom of Antichrist that we call the world system. His enemy is the power of death. And all who reject Christ, those who are not for me, are against me. He is waiting. He is waiting to demonstrate the justice that the world doesn't give to many people who are suffering injustice tonight. He is waiting to resolve the questions that bubble up in people's minds, the whys of of people's consciousnesses. He is waiting. But do not mistake his waiting for indifference. Because as the sins accumulate, the measure of judgment accumulates. And the cross and the resurrection make that final victory over Satan and his works secure. In fact, in his coming into the world, he overcame the world. Having spoiled the principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in the cross. When he rose from the dead, he was putting his fingers in the eyes of Satan. He was demonstrating to the world, Satan will not have the last word. He was demonstrating his purpose to destroy them. When he cried out, finished, he was crying out his victory words over all of his his enemies. Until waiting. And in the meantime, where are we? We who have been sanctified, we who have been set aside, we who have been marked out by God and given the Holy Spirit, sanctified. We're saints. You may not feel like a saint, but in God's eyes, you've been sanctified. Where are we? Well, here we come to chapter 12. The writer of the Hebrews must have had a bit of Yoda from Star Wars in him. He begins, not come you have, (laughs) literally, not come you have, not stands at the very beginning of the Greek sentence. It implies that these people had, who had come to Christ, had not come as the Israelites came in the desert to Mount Sinai. He reminds them what that was like in those days for those people. As he's done throughout this book, he compares the experience of God's people in the past to the experience of God's people today. You can read about the story. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, they came and they stood at the foot of the mountain, it says. The mountain burned with fire. There was darkness, cloud, and tempest. The Lord spoke out of the fire. You heard the sound of his, of his words. And the people, said, the people said to Moses, Oh, Moses, listen, that's a bit loud. Uh, we, we like kind of back away from the volume. Uh, you speak to us and we will hear you, but please don't let God speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. You can sense the terror in their voice. 
The writer says this terror was exaggerated by the warning not to come near the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it will die. And even Moses, Moses, the man of God who knew God, a friend of God, was terrified at the sight of the power of God and the majesty. He said, I tremble with fear. We're told in Exodus that Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Stephen, in his, in his sermon uh, uh, before his execution, said, Moses trembled and did not dare to look at God. He says, Moses says in Deuteronomy 9, I feared the anger and the wrath of God. Sinai was all about thundering and lightning, thick cloud, loud trumpet blast, the whole mountain quaking greatly. It was a terrifying place to be. So Mount Sinai came to stand for the place where people were unable to draw near to God's presence because of sin. It became a kind of sign and symbol of what it is to be kept at at an infinite distance from the holy God. The distance was enshrined in the calculations for the tabernacle and later for the temple to keep people at a distance from the holy of holies. It was a reminder of how deep sin went, how great was the chasm between man and sin and God. And in between there's the altar, of course. In between there's a a promise of hope. In, In between there is the slaying of these animals again and again and again, reminding them there is hope for the future, trust in the hope for the future, pointing them always to the future. But it was boundaries and barriers. Sinai was all about boundaries and barriers. But, but, back in chapter 10, verse 22, we're encouraged there to draw near to God through the blood of Christ. That's the application of what Jesus has done. If we'd gone on in chapter 10 there, we'd have seen this. Come come boldly to him. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's how we draw near to God in worship, as Christian believers. Not with cringing fear. That doesn't mean we pause, we don't pause to acknowledge the holiness of God and the fact that we can only draw near on the basis of the gospel's assurance of pardon. But having received that, we boldly draw near. We boldly speak in our prayers. We boldly sing his praises. In the Greek, the transition, verse 22, is strong. But you have come. The person who comes to God by Jesus Christ has drawn near to God. Everything that was incomplete and inadequate is reversed when we come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion represents our heavenly homeland, the heavenly homeland of God's people. You've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Whatever it is, it's a created thing, created place. It's creatures who come into this place. It's the place of God's presence, of God's residence. 
Galatians 4 says, uh, contrasts it with the present Jerusalem, which he compares to Mount Sinai with the heavenly Jerusalem, who is the mother of us all. He distinguishes the two things. We, the church, the new Jerusalem is our mother. God's true dwelling place is among his people, where his people are. Whether they're on earth, he chooses to meet with us here, but more so even in glory, in his glorious, glorious presence, which I take to to mean that while God is always, always present in all the fullness of his being, wherever we are, any place in the world, at all times, he chooses to reveal and manifest his presence gloriously to his people in, in heaven. And this was, this was what drove the, uh, the people of God in the old covenant. This is what drove Abraham. We're told that Abraham was looking forward to that city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. It was because of that city that, that he lived as an exile in the land that God had promised him. He never settled down, never bought real estate except for a grave. He, he, he believed that here he had no continuing city. And we need to remind ourselves, one of the greatest texts, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones saying on one occasion, he said that if he were to begin his ministry all over again, he would begin with the text from Hebrews, here we have no continuing city. We need to be reminded of this. We talk as if we're going to be here forever. We talk as if this is all there is. We talk as if the issues of today here are really important, ultimately. Of course, we have to be aware of them. We have to deal with what we have to deal with. We have to shovel the stuff we have to shovel. I mean, that's, that's what, you, what a minister has to do. That's what the church has to do. But these things are nothing in the eternal schema of things. It is the holy city, New Jerusalem. It is that our citizenship is in heaven. And that's our destiny. These Hebrews, you see, they were being enticed away from their orthodox faith. They were being tempted to be sucked into the scheme of this world. They needed to be reminded that when you've come to God, you've come to that eternal city. You belong. It's as if you're already there. So that when you meet in worship, you're meeting with all these people that he describes and all these creatures that he describes and with the God that he describes in these verses. Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am, let the world deride our pity. I will glory in your name. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Those who have come to Mount Zion are in august company. The angels who are the exalted spiritual beings who serve God day and night, who are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. The Son of Man was for a little while made lower than the angels. Now he is exalted far above the angels. The angels are impressive. The angels are a blessing. The angels are with us even as we meet just now in in the worship of God. The angels worship the Son. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We have come to a myriad of angels. We have come to the church of the firstborn 
whose names are written in heaven. The assembly, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, speaks of Moses. He was in the church, in the desert, with the angels who spoke to him in Mount Sinai. The Three times in the book of Deuteronomy, the awesome day of God is described as the day of the ecclesia, the day of the church. The church of the firstborn. Well, in Hebrews, the firstborn is Christ, his eternal generation, and also his resurrection in the new creation. Through the gospel, we belong to the company of the reborn. We have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are heirs of God and heirs with Christ. Our names are written in heaven. Moses, you remember in Numbers 3, registered the names of all the firstborn males of the house of Israel. That was their enrollment on earth. Brothers and sisters, our names are enrolled in heaven. They're in the Lamb's book of life. Their names are written in heaven, Jesus said. Our names are in the book of life, said the Apostle Paul. And Athanasius writes this, who would not wish to enjoy the high companionship of these? Who would not desire to be enrolled with these that we may hear with them, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We belong to the church of the firstborn. We've come to the judge, the God of all, that's the correct translation. You won't find that in the ESV. We've come to the judge, the God of all. He is the creator and sustainer of all. Psalm 9 says, the Lord reigns forever. He's established a throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He'll govern the peoples with justice. We've come to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. What happens when you die? Your spirit is separated from your body. Your body goes into the ground. Your spirit goes to Jerusalem. Your spirit is made perfect until it's reunited with your perfected body at the resurrection. Absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new company, a new covenant. Jesus is the center, crown, and cause of all of this that we're given to enjoy. This letter has already talked about a new covenant, the focus of the promises, the reality of which everything pointed towards which everything pointed to us to Jesus. We're given his human name because there is something familiar. When we think of God, we think of God, the immortal, invisible, the incomprehensible, the immense, the immutable. God has given us something familiar by taking on our human nature. He wants you to be able to see something, hear something, something creaturely like you are. He wants you to feel his touch, creaturely touch. 
to see a creatureless smile. God in his amazing and infinite wisdom has not determined that he would scare us when we're in his presence, but that we would find his presence familiar. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood that brings us into the presence of God, which is the very basis of our being there. This is the perspective of the child of God. Jesus is exalted so that we one day will share in that exaltation. We will follow him to be glorified in our bodies as he is glorified in his creaturely body. We will share the glory of God in a manner appropriate to our creaturely status. We we will enjoy the intimate love between the Father and the Son of which the Bible speaks in, in such wonderful terms. We will enjoy that love shared with us intimately and, and, and perfectly according to our creaturely capacity, but a capacity so much greater than the capacity we have this side of eternity. That's our destiny. And what of this world? Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. It's as if it will be taken up and shaken around so that everything that defiles and everything that is worthless and everything that causes pain and everything that abuses and everything that that hurts and everything that causes memories that destroy and are destructive of our personality and everything that has deceived, everything that is evil and everything that is a lie of the devil, everything is shaken out of it altogether. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. What remains... The new heavens and the new earth, renewed cosmos. Everything that remains will be holy unto the Lord. Everything that remains will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. Everything that remains after having been consumed by the fire of God's judgment, we will be consumed by the fire of his love, the warmth of his love. And we will enjoy him forever. We long for that to happen. We long for that day. We should live for that day. That day should be always on the horizon of our thought. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending. Swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Everlasting God. Come down. Come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Amen. Oh, Father, will you please stir us up as we think of the exaltation of your Son and we think of his coming again and we think of the glory that will be ours. Give us, Lord, we pray, that perspective to go back home, do the work we need to do, 
And every morning as we wake, may the thought be in our minds, the Lord Jesus may come today. Our work will end when the Lord Jesus comes. And we're waiting for the dawning of that day when we will see him face to face. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.